my name's Kat, or Catherine. Um, my friends call me Kat. I am with the Trans Lifeline, and she, her pronouns for me, please. Um, Dr. Alkohai has graciously invited me to come here today, and we have worked together at the Trans Lifeline, forming the Family and Friends Project. I will talk more about the backstory and how that got started a little later. Um, currently based out of Las Vegas and am doing the family line as well as with Trans Matters Now. Um, my partner James was really awesome to put this through Canva for us. We took the content, we took all of the material, ran it through Canva, Canva and got it all looking really nice. So um, we work together at Trans Matters Now. We have a jobs program and news outreach that y'all can feel free to check out at transmattersnow.com. We've got more info in the links. Um, so our objectives for learning today. We want to introduce you all to the disparities faced by trans and gender nonconforming folks when reaching out for care. Um, you will hear us use the terminology of LGBTQIA. Um, you may be wondering why in a trans-specific presentation. Um, we have included that because there are so many trans and GNC folks, or gender nonconforming folks, who do identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, asexual, so we want to make sure that we are inclusive in that regard. Um, also for a lot of folks who might not be able to come out and might not identify as trans but may have other cultural understandings of things and maybe also gender nonconforming and using different terminology. So we want to be very inclusive of that. We will be talking today about the awareness of human diversity and recognizing that trans and gender variant conditions are not not like a medical defect, like these are just natural variations of human development, so we'll go into that as well. Um, we will talk about how to be an ally and what that actually translates to boots on the ground, what it looks like in action. We will talk about perspective taking and how things, depending on one's perspective, can vary radically and how individuals' experience of things, whether someone is a BIPOC individual, a black indigenous person of color, or a transgender nonconforming person or a cisgender person, how much that perspective can be going into place there. We'll spend some time talking about opposition and transphobia that we run up against and how to cope with that, as well as how specifically that is affecting allies and care providers, um, as well as loved ones of trans people. We will also talk about specific mental health issues that we face um, and also disparities there when receiving care and when reaching out to get care. I want to spend a moment to talk about ethnic diversity. We will go into a lot of detail in just a moment about the numbers and how, you know, some of you may not be aware, many of you may already be aware of the disparities in statistics for black and indigenous persons of color receiving care. It is awful and I will talk more about that. Um, we need to focus on solutions and making this better. Um, those of us who do have privilege and are, you know, white passing and those of y'all who might be cis and het, using that privilege to go forward and make changes for the better and um, what that can look like as well. We will talk about the intersections of oppression. So I want to go ahead and just dig into this now. When at the intersection of two marginalized identities, BIPOC trans folks face these disparities. Um, I will just leave this up here for a second. It is just staggering. Um, we face 
trans and GNC folks in general, but even more so our BIPOC siblings face extreme odds when reaching out for care, when reaching out for housing, when reaching out for jobs. Um, it seems like no matter where we turn, there are doors slamming in our face. So what can we do about it? We will talk about what to do. Um, the numbers don't lie. So ethnic diversity, this also affects folks with regards to insecurity, um, disparities in mental and physical health, such as depression and other like health conditions that are disproportionately affecting um, BIPOC individuals and black folks specifically who are LGBT. Um, again, the numbers are up here for y'all and we will have the slides. They're already posted onto the website if y'all want to go forward and share any of this. So LGBTQ persons of color confronting multiple forms of oppression and at these like intersecting lines of marginalization. And so we try to trace that back and recognizing that these forms of oppression seem to have a common cause. And so we are working to alleviate that cause. Um, largely like misinformation and erasure processes at work. We'll talk more about that. Um, the numbers are up here and yeah there. Religious diversity is something that might not get talked about as often in these conversations, but it is something that does affect us tremendously, um, especially with regard to cultural differences and upbringing and um, different perspectives and understandings of religious values um, can go into play here. And so when we are working with patients, when we're working with anyone really, even as a peer supporter, it can be good to like really keep an open mind with regard to a person's cultural experience and what they've been through in life, as well as with regards to any privileges that they may or may not possess, um, with regards to any sort of like just really baseline assumptions that they may or may not have. Um, it's good to really get a feel and feel like where is this person at on their journey so that I can meet them where they are. Um, Religious LGBT folks are found across every age, um, every racial and ethnic group. You may not realize that so many of us are in religious communities and yet, you know, there's so much opposition, but we belong and we've always existed throughout time, history, even in the animal kingdom, trans and gender variant individuals have always existed. Um, spiritual diversity, 45% of us report being agnostic and 33% are involved with Christianity and um, had shifted away from that. This points to, again, different processes at work of uh, opposition within organized religion. You may run up against that. Nation of origin diversity, we will also cover here. With regards to national origin and immigration status, there are very specific things that go into play. Um, we at the Trans Lifeline are a really good resource to get folks in touch with. If you are talking with someone dealing with immigration, dealing with trying to get naturalized, dealing with any of that process. Also for regards to documentation changes, we are able to help pay for that. We're able to help folks get their paperwork lined up so that they can move on and have a successful, um, hopefully go on and have a successful life from there. We find that getting documentation and getting these types of things taken care of can really improve the chances that someone will have a positive experience when reaching out for care. Um, so again, like nation of origin diversity can have a lot with regard to privilege that a person 
may not be experiencing or may be experiencing. So keeping that in mind and working with patients. I found personally an experience that open-ended questions can really go a long way. Um, 42% of LGBTQ adults identify as persons of color, 21 as Latinx, 12% as black, and 2% as Asian, 1% as American Indian. We are more diverse in the overall population that is 60% white. And I included this so that y'all can be aware of states that patients might be coming from. Um, surprisingly, yeah. Um, We've got the statistics here for LGBT folks with kids as well as the general population of LGBT folks. Um, and to kind of give you an idea of where people might be from in the US that you might be working with. Um, you see Tally up here at number five. Um, and it's interesting to note the differences in the percentage of children versus the overall population here, um, especially with DC. And so I, you know, this is news, um, learned this very recently, but we actually have an LGBT center in Antarctica. So we are global and <laughs> we are um, on all continents now. Really good news. Um, I want to take a moment to talk about something really serious with regards to ableism and everything that that can entail. Differently abled does not mean unable. And so many of these conditions that you'll notice on this list are invisible disabilities. I want to make sure that we really reinforce that these invisible disabilities are every bit as real and present and you know can be life-consuming as um, other forms of disability that might be very visible or readily apparent. Um, especially with regards to like neurodivergency, with regards to um, pain conditions like fibro, all kinds of different things that a person might be going through, as well as with post-traumatic stress. So we want to make sure that we're talking about these things as well as providers, and also making assumptions on these types of things. Um, these are all conditions that you might be working with patients dealing with, and recognizing that differently able does not mean unable. Um, simply that we need to find a way to make things work. We face limited access to LGBTQ inclusive and accessible services. So while we have these sorts of conditions at higher numbers than the overall cishet population, the programs that are designed to treat our populations were not designed for us in the first place. They just simply don't work for us. Um, we at the Trans Lifeline formed the Trans Lifeline due to the fact that active rescue mandated reporting services and the medical establishment as well as the psych establishment had let us down time and time and time again. Um, when we reach out to care, it is much more difficult to get that same care. Um, and it, when we do receive care, it's not made for us. So we are having to really um, push to make these changes on the fly as we go along with providers many times. Um, it can be so disheartening, I will tell you as a transgender person, to feel like I'm having to educate the provider with regards to trans issues. Um, so y'all being here today is so refreshing to take the time to really learn firsthand and to gather that. That is amazing and so refreshing. Um, so for our youth that are facing disabilities, they are bullied even more. Um, not 
bad enough that they get bullied for being trans um, and for other marginalizations, but they're also harassed for being dis disabled. And so since we're, you know, we're more likely to have these disabilities and of more than 26,000, 39% reported being disabled, and you'll see how much difference there is in the numbers here. And so, you know, within treatment, there seems to be a lot of really age-specific programming out there, and especially with um, CPS and foster and even um, getting mental health and group homes and stuff. Many, many times we will get the call from someone at the lifeline, hey, I'm aging out of my program. I just turned 18. I have no idea where to go. I'm on the street. Please help me. And to me, that is such a huge failure of every level to really help empower this individual to be able to move on from there to a successful opportunity or even to feel that they have opportunities to work on from there. Um, many times our youth will be forced into various sorts of harmful behaviors in order to survive. We will talk more about that in a moment. So age is something, you know, it comes up a lot too with someone coming out. Um, it's oftentimes a conception that, oh, well, you know, there will be signs really early on, or, you know, if someone is trans, they'll know from a very young age. That is not always the case. Um, there was recently a 92-year-old World War II veteran in England who came out, and she was just beautiful and radiant, and you could just tell that she felt that authenticity. Um, individuals will realize this stuff at any age and for various reasons. Sometimes it can be due to like social pressures to conform to gendered stereotypes. Sometimes it can be that like peer pressure and other types of things, internalized transphobia and shame, um, trauma and other types of minority stress adding up. So these types of things can make it really hard for a person to come out or to feel like if they do come out, they can be well received. Um, and also there is no typical trans experience. Um, there are no two trans individuals that have that same, that same experience exactly the same. Um, you know, we will talk more about that in just a moment, but people learn all, you know, at, at any point throughout their life, it might come to them. So because these conditions can, you know, because these can become real to a person at any age, our response needs to have that same authenticity. We need to be responding with that same respect, that same care, as much as that person cares to come out and to share that with you, meeting them on that same level. And that's really amazing. That takes so much courage and so much strength um, to be honest about that and to come out. So we need to be compassionate and offering as high level of care as we possibly can when offering that compassion. Our older adults do experience unique disparities, disproportionately affected by poverty. Um, these physical and mental health conditions that add up over a lifetime, unique stressors associated with being trans, even more so if someone's BIPOC, um, and experience dif different forms of neglect and mistreatment in their facilities and going forward in older facilities they may face more discrimination based on their age group. Um, some of the things that I just mentioned with regards to people telling them you're not really trans, you didn't realize this until later. 
um, they might meet those sorts of resistances. They might um, meet other sorts of discrimination, like when reaching out for jobs and all sorts of um, these things happen all the time. And so there are very unique challenges experienced by both young and older folks um, within our community. Regardless of a person's age, diversity is normal. This is a natural variation of human development and not an aberration <laughs> of any sorts. Um, it is important when treating a trans patient to treat them as any other patient with regards to the authenticity. Like, and it is very important if an individual is identifying within that binary and comes to you and says, hey, I'm a trans woman. Hey, I'm a trans man. They need to be treated as any other man or woman with regards to that. Um, social, how you're treating them in a social regard. Um, diversity within the community, um, there is so much overlap within the trans community and intersex population. Many trans individuals are in fact also intersex and vice versa and at the same time many intersex individuals are not trans whatsoever. So it is important that these are two separate conversations but because there is so much overlap, I wanted to make sure that we cover this as well. Um, being trans by all of our best research does seem to be an, based on like a multiplicity of different inclinations that can be biological, social, and all sorts of other things. We'll talk more about that, but it is simply natural. In terminology, this is all 101 stuff. It's in here. If there are any questions, we have the link in our resource pack to the Transgender Language Primer, which is a very, very good read. I love to share this with family members and folks who might be new on their journey coming out as trans. They might not have terminology to use to describe things in a way that is going to make a lot of sense to others in the trans and queer community. Um, it can be helpful, especially so with family members. If it's another person talking about a trans person, and they are using language that could be considered archaic or could be considered offensive, it is very important to stop that person and let them know educational resources so that they can not be offensive to their trans loved ones. Um, and as a provider, some of this stuff can change very, very rapidly in the community, as well as our understanding of these things can change. So um, it's definitely good to keep an eye on this stuff. And as it changes, if there are any questions on any specific, more nuanced aspects of language that we use in the community, you can find it all there in the language primer. Also, it is a good time to talk about cultural diversity and language that folks may use to describe themselves. With trans individuals using language to self-identify, that can be something where it's not necessarily a cis person's place to correct a trans person and say, well, you might not want to say that about yourself. Um, if a trans person is self-identifying with language that could be considered a little archaic, I'm not going to you know, say a slur necessarily, but um, a little bit older terminology that some people might rub them the wrong way. Um, I wouldn't stop them and try to correct them on that. That's just a difference in perspective. Um, also with translation and bilingual conversations, if you are a monolingual English, English speaking person and speaking to someone who's come from like a monolingual speaking family that is using different languages, sometimes translation can be 
difficult when translating and words might come across in a different way um, in translation. So it's important to keep a really open mind. And if you are not primarily like a monolingual speaking person of another language, bilingual, especially, I'll just use the example, like in Spanish, we have the bilingual services line at the hotline. We will get calls sometimes. And if you're not, if you're not familiar with the language that's being used, some of the language, if you're hearing these words and are an English speaking person, you might not understand right away. Um, but it's very, very important to meet these needs where they arise with the same level of like cultural competency and to be able to be understanding and not make these assumptions um, in that sort of situation. Um, and so that, you know, age can also have an effect on that too. If a person is coming from an older generation and like, like myself, you know, a little older, um, when I was coming up, the terminology back in the 90s and the 2000s was a lot different. You might have heard like older terms like the noun, you know, calling someone a transgender or using like transgendered in some of the like research texts that we still have access to now. Um, yeah, this kind of stuff, we can fix it as we go along. Not really a deal breaker. Disparities, we are twice as likely as cishet folks to experience health disparities on all levels two and a half times more likely to experience anxiety, depression, attempt suicide, and misuse substances. Women who are LGBTQIA and including trans women are twice as likely to engage in heavy alcohol consumption, often self-medicate. And you know we feel that that is largely due to minority stresses that are being experienced. We are at a higher risk for substance use, STDs, cancer, you know, crimes of survival, bullying, cardio, health conditions, all sorts of these things that add up. We receive a more poor quality of care and the reasons why. Stigma, lack of awareness, oftentimes there's deliberate misinformation being passed around, um, insensitivity to the unique needs, and sometimes simply there's like this um, process of erasure taking place. Sometimes we're just silenced. The trans individuals are not being heard. Um, so yeah, here are the numbers. We are facing verbal insults. We're facing abuse, bullying, harassment. Conversion therapy is something that I've experienced firsthand. I will talk with y'all more about that towards the end. Um, all throughout, you know, every, all the research that I've done on our own history in American medical science with John Money and the Harry Benjamin stuff, all of the attempts to try and cure trans individuals have always backfired. It has oftentimes resulted in suicide. Um, conversion camps are still taking place in many states and we are actively advocating to get them banned all over the place. I've experienced them firsthand and I will tell you it's nothing to play around with. Um, the average number of mental health days experienced by trans individuals is 15 versus 6 by a cishet person. And I don't think that it's just because we complain three times as much. I, I think it could be due to minority stress and trauma um, as well as other things um, that we're experiencing here. We are more likely to rate our health as fair or poor and to experience those types of health conditions. We have a higher prevalence of suicidal ideation attempts and self-harm. It is really, really hard to get a good, accurate number of how many. Um, it varies anywhere from like 41 to 56% by our estimate, by our guesses and what we have to go on. But that does not include those that are closeted, those that are not able to really describe their experience in ways that we would 
understand them as trans or GNC, and those of them that like we never hear from. There are those that we simply have not been able to reach. Um, so it is our goal to re be able to reach folks that we've not been able to reach so far. Um, we want to be able to reduce as many of those preventable deaths as possible, and many of these deaths are in fact preventable, as we'll talk about in a moment. Um, experiencing this discrimination, it's terrible, and the response to this, if it's not like a collective response of, like, we're not going to take this crap, you have to stand up, and our cis allies helping in that process, we can't do it without y'all, like, we really need y'all's help in that regard, um, to help with handling the other cis people. So if it's at all possible, we would ask you to go forward and also try and do your best to make more cis allies. But please, please don't do that at your own expense of your own health or safety. Please take good care of yourself first. As we tell all of our new operators at the Lifeline, if you're on an airplane and it's about to crash and the oxygen masks go down, they will ask you to put on your own mask before helping your neighbor. So, you know, all of these statistics and numbers, in real life experience, it ends up looking like homelessness, employment, medical discrimination, um, the school to prison pipeline, um, rejection by family and rejection by peers and other factors can oftentimes lead to a person being forced out into the streets. Once a person is out in that cycle, it can be incredibly difficult to get back out of that cycle again. Um, having experienced nearly five years of homelessness over the past decade and being back out of that for about five years now, I will let you know it is no joke. Um, once in that cycle, the resources to get out are very, very limited. And um, again, the disparity exists between the numbers of trans and LGBTQ homeless individuals versus those that are receiving care in the overall. Um, cis loved ones may not be aware of these hardships that we are facing, and when they are aware of these things, they can oftentimes get stuck on the negativity involved and say like, oh, well, you know, this is so horrible. I really don't want this for my loved one. Well, your loved one probably doesn't want that either. <laughs> um, I will be the first to tell you, maybe not, but no amount of wishing can make a person not trans. If a person is going through this, you know, I myself for many years wished that I weren't trans and having to go through the hardships involved specifically. Um, it was a long time until I could really find pride in that and to feel like this is who I am. And I'm really, I'm really glad that I can go on with this experience and help others. Um, and so when family members get stuck on the negative and say like, you know, I don't want this for my loved ones. So I'm going to try and suppress them or I'm going to try and limit their ability to access transition resources or other sorts of things. Um, these overwhelming disparities can become more real for the trans person because of the fact that their loved one is wanting this to not be happening. Um, hard to explain all that, but yeah, basically like this is real. This is not something that can be wished away. And for family members and for providers, becoming aware of these unique challenges and ways to provide toward those needs to empower the trans loved one and the trans individuals first and foremost. Um, helping the loved ones is directly helping the trans individual in their life. We find that trans individuals are 
best helped by other trans individuals when reaching out for peer support. And we also find that the same is true for cis allies. When cis allies are receiving care from a provider who is also a really strong cis ally, that effect can be contagious. It can rub off and that same like enthusiasm and hopefulness that things can be better. It can really rub off on them. So giving one's all to be an ally. We know about these problems and we know that all of this stuff is happening, but what do we do about it? So <clears throat> there are so many sorts of like biases and even overt oppression versus like more subtle types of oppression, like microaggressions. Um, the one I mentioned previously to this slide is an example um, with a parent, like not wanting their kid to be trans. So they try to limit their access. Um, this can occur in the medical establishment when reaching out for care. I am from Mississippi um, originally. I've been gone from there for a long time, but in that state, it is still to this day legal for a medical provider to deny life-saving health care to a trans person. So um, that's one thing. Socioeconomic disparities, socioeconomic disparities, like reaching out for jobs, and then disease-specific disparities. Um, many trans folks using hormones will have to use needles with that, and access to those can sometimes be limited as well due to healthcare access religious discrimination, all of these sorts of things. What can we do about it? First thing, enhancing our awareness. Y'all are doing so awesome by being here today and being that change. That is amazing. Raising one's awareness and understanding about these things and sharing that information. Providing a more comprehensive and evidence-based medical care. Humane. We want to also empower y'all to be able to write consent letters if that's something that's in your wheelhouse. Um, my colleague, Dr. Alquahai, will talk with you more about that as well. And we have the link to sign up if you are interested in being able to provide consent letters for trans individuals um, experiencing gatekeeping. When we reach out for medical care, we can sometimes experience gatekeeping from a medical provider where they will be like, are you really trans? Let me try and suss this out let, and ask you a hundred million questions. and." Um, you know, did you experience this at the age of five and at the age of 10, did you have this happen? Well, you know, that's hogwash. There is, <laughs> there's no typical trans experience. And so self-identifying is the basis for what we go on in peer support uh, at the lifeline. If you are willing to provide these sorts of consent letters for trans people looking to get on hormones, looking to get surgery, um, also getting their documentation. Um, that is one of the easiest things that takes some of the least amount of time next to using the right name and pronouns. There is a link to a spreadsheet in the resource guide. Please get signed up if you would like. And it's a really simple way to help. Gender is determined by one's own identification. Also based on legal status, you know, in recognition and social interactions, um, public persona. But yeah, first and foremost, self-identification. Self so we should cut out the gatekeeping. A gender-bred person from uh, TSER, this is a really good resource um, to share with family and with younger folks trying to come to understand this. Biology defaults in utero to intersex. External genitalia will develop, and my colleague will talk more about that in detail. So in the first trimester is when the genitals start to form, and in order to differentiate between the biological sexes, 
um, testosterone starts to wash in utero and um, then the genitalia will develop from there. And so from that turns into either ovaries or growing down into the fused labia and scrotum turning into testes. And so if a female embryo is exposed to testosterone in that wash or if a male embryo is not exposed to enough, intersex. Um, there are other ways that this happens and these conditions can occur on lines of like um, physical anatomy that is visible to the doctor. It can also look like hormonal conditions. There are many, many individuals that medical establishment does not consider intersex who do themselves consider themselves intersex um, due to hormonal imbalances and hormonal um, conditions and things like that. We all start out intersex. People are not simply created male or female. We are all intersex first. And some folks develop into male and females. Others of us continue to develop in non-binary ways that all of us once shared. Um, these organizations themselves are non-binary. You know, there is no male or female to these organizations. And um, I'd like to remind that to people, you know, the Trans Lifeline, we are a non-binary organization. Um, we default to using they, them. If we don't know a person's pronouns, we find that oftentimes it can be the least harmful option and can also encourage folks to use singular they if they're resistant to that. So using a trauma-informed harm reduction approach, recognizing the effectiveness of simple peer support and taking talking with one another as peers is the most helpful thing to reduce the attendant harm associated with risk factors that we will face. There is a document as well, seven risk factors and seven resilience factors that's available from SAMHSA um, that is talking about these risk factors. And this is one of the easiest things that can be done. Putting us together, trans people together in a room, we start to talk about the trauma that we've been through. We start to talk about coping. Sometimes we start to talk about distracting stuff like our cats and animals and plants and things like that. And, um, these things are really, really helpful to us at not dying. Um, we found that that same thing is true with cis allies. And we put y'all together in groups. We put cis individuals together that are, are strong allies and it is really strong in strengthening those bonds. This directly translates to increased support for the trans community. Um, <clears throat> the medical and psych establishment oftentimes framed as the experts and end all be all in this sort of thing have let us down time and time and time again. We face discrimination in multiple facets of life, including healthcare. Acknowledging that the number one risk factor for suicide includes rejection by friends, family, and loved ones, as well as not being able to access the care that we need. So when our allies turn their back on us, our so-called allies, some otherwise well-meaning cis folks may feel bullied and pressured into enabling that. We get calls all the time from cis allies that may be surrounded by opposition. Um, someone's, someone's family member might be the only supportive person in their life and they may be getting, um, trigger warning, but they may be getting like assaulted. They may be getting um, threatened with worse than that. They may be, you know, these, these experiences that a cis person goes through can oftentimes be every bit as life-threatening. And so it is also really important to check in with our cis allies about like, how are you doing in coping with this stuff? Um, we, you know, cis folks are facing dangers too for stepping up and um, that's very real. Sometimes 
simply not aware of options for support sometimes those options are being like um hidden from them sometimes they just might not be able to access them for various reasons um and until very recently these resources were very very limited um and have really boomed in the last five years we've got a lot more now than we had in the past um even in 2017 when dr alcohai reached out to trans lifeline we got together and started talking about the same stuff right here that was how the idea came about in the first place we moved on from there and we have been able to really translate this into helping people we create stronger support for one another's trans individuals by supporting our allies the work is centered around the guiding principle of trans liberation we want there to be as trans individuals and as a trans community we want there to be nothing about us without us being included first and foremost we want this to be a conversation guided by us as trans people so that y'all are hearing what we have to say about it and thank you for listening um li liberation from this bigotry and transphobia and um starting with those who may not understand what it's like to be trans or intersex we are on a mission to expand this awareness and to build understanding the callback program and this is an example of a peer support program that is up and running and it's working um, when a person calls the trans lifeline we have an 800 number 877-565-8860 if someone calls that number our operators take down their name and best time to call if they're a cis ally we will first find out is someone's life in danger is this something that can wait a day or two um, if it is most likely we're talking about resources we're talking about coming out and like emotional stuff involved with that sometimes ambiguous grief so you know we're gonna call them back when we get the opportunity because of the fact that we don't have as many volunteers to meet the need um, we are at this time volunteer driven like we need our volunteers to be able to do the work and that is very true in almost every aspect of the trans community outreach and nonprofits we need our volunteers um, so yeah it takes us a couple days to call back within about 48 hours we call the person we talk to them we assist them with resources we provide them with whatever we feel like they're going to need that they're asking for specifically um, with our cis allies we want to provide that frontline level of support the first time they call the 800 number if they're calling about something life-threatening um, so it's really important to do like a risk assessment very early on and find out what's really going on here can we um, what needs can we provide and do we have the resources to meet those needs and is this a good time to provide those needs um, sometimes what a person might need is not resources thrown at them but instead they may be needing to like emotionally vent or needing to um, have just a sounding board rather than having like advice or a bunch of resources so that can be true um, anytime you're talking with a trans person or a cis ally so our callbacks when we do place the callbacks they are less crisis oriented and focused more on raising awareness than on de-escalation and we love to give our cis allies crap <laughs> we hope to give you resources to do the same we want to help build community um, we as providers oftentimes even if we really really want to can't be that person's community we can't be the person that they turn to for all of their like support um, as a peer supporter 
we are trying to work with so many different people all the time that it might not be possible. Um, you know, level of support that one can get from a therapist or from a psychiatrist, psychologist, from a medical professional is a lot different than peer support. There may be aspects of things like unconditional positive regard coming into play. Um, I like to answer that with authenticity on every level. Um, helping to build community rather than trying to be that person's community is super duper important. Getting them plugged into support group, plugged into other types of like social groups, learning resources, anything um, to help with community. Resources for educational stuff, whether that be like in, including medical referrals, including those letters of rec, um, helping with those actual resources, but not to um, preclude emotional support at the same time. And a plan of action at the very end of any interaction with a cis ally or a trans individual, we want to know, like, what's your plan from here? How are you going to proceed? Um, excuse me, like if you're talking about something really serious and, excuse me, they get to a stopping point, cool. So where are we going to go from here? We want to build that solid foundation for one another across the continent and abroad. And this, these principles can be applied to almost any interaction that you're having with a community member. So with our example of the hotline, we shattered that from the original hotline because of the fact that the peer support is so similar and the the fact that we help one another having that similar lived experience is so helpful um, we translated that over and made a bunch of changes to make it more specific um, the good samaritans law is something that can affect peer supporters if a person is not a mandated reporter and a trans person is telling you about suicidality the first response if you are not a mandated reporter is oftentimes best not to report them um, sometimes you may have no other option i'm not here to tell you to don't ever ever do that i am here to tell you please think very very carefully before placing that call at the lifeline we never place that call for anyone unless the trans person calls us and tells us hey I'm gonna die please call and get me help um, that's the only time was with their consent so we got up and running in 2019 we're on a summer hiatus right now um, and are returning on September 1st we found it for work in community activism to be meaningful and fulfilling it needs to be personal cis volunteers have shown us that if it's not something close to heart it won't be something that is sticking permanent and lasting in their life um, and they won't be dedicated they'll fizzle out so really early on in my getting involved in activism nearly a decade ago i try to remember those reasons why i first started and i ask you right now to please think and reflect on why are you here today why did you get involved in doing health provider work, why did you get involved in doing mental health and peer support at all? Keeping that really close is the most effective thing that I and my operators at the Lifeline have found to help when burnout sets in. And it has not been a matter of if, but when. When in professions where we are trauma-centric, um, we are being exposed to secondary trauma, deference occurs, we get stuck in that oftentimes. And have a really hard time. So
um, the antidote to that compassion fatigue is compassion satisfaction. And that is gained through reflection on like all of the good things that can be done to um, counteract these active processes of opposition that we're up against. And so if anyone wants to get involved, this can be a really good way to educate family members. If you have a patient that needs info or if they have family and friends that want to help out, please send them over to translifeline.org. They can get in touch through the contact form on the website. We've got some stuff in the chat as well. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so very much. And a firm understanding is really, really important. I recommend you to please go forward from here to do some research. We have a ton of information. If you want to join Trans Lifeline training on the family line, just for the research, I'm not going to stop you. That's fine. You can come sign up. We will um, talk about ambiguous grief, the stages of change that persons might go through throughout their life. This was borrowed from addiction counseling in SAMHSA. Um, really, really great stuff on stages of change model that can be applied to trans transition. It can be applied to suicide and it can be applied to an ally coming to understand and coming to a point of understanding and acceptance. So yeah, please go forward and do some research if you would like. And um, it's really helpful to share with family members specifically about what things they should not do. Um, oftentimes they'll be so worried about, oh, I don't know what to do. Well, that's fine that you don't know what to do. Let's talk about what not to do. <laughs> These are things like never out your loved one, never do this or that that's going to hurt them. Never um, call and place a rescue call behind their back and don't tell them because that can make things go from bad to worse. Um, you might have to inform yourself and others on more in-depth and nuanced discussions, harm reduction in the queer community. Um, we face different sorts of things that are really commonplace to those of us in the queer community that to those on the outside might look like a full-blown crisis. And that occurs all the time. Um, we will have especially family members that are really, really concerned about their loved ones. And when we finally hear from their loved ones on the line, it's just there every day. We talk all the time about the same stuff and nothing's changed. Um, it's really sad when the loved one comes to realize that this is normal for us. So we need to make it better. And focusing on what not to do is a really effective way to do that. Don't misgender them. Um, don't harm them. Please, please don't make things worse for the trans person. Um, the seven risk factors and seven resilience factors also in the library. Um, and available on SAMHSA. And appropriate language and wording, we talked about that already, but um, it changes from time to time, so please keep up to date um, with the conversations. Folks may be dealing with a range of emotions when coming out, trans individuals as well as their loved ones. Cis folks may be focused on how they feel about this and their own emotional bias rather than what's best for their loved ones. So we have to focus as providers on what's best for the trans person because of the fact that they've been left out. We have been left out so much. Working to steer towards immersive community, validating resources, and helping to form a plan of action for going forward, redirecting their focus away from bad to good. Reasoning with a loved one might not work, um, especially if you are finding that a person is just dead up against this stuff. If you are dealing with a person that is refusing to be accepting or refusing to learn, refusing to do anything at all, it might be a waste of time to try. But 
if that's your job anyway, we can work on that by sprinkling in those educational stats. I included a lot of them in the earlier part of the slides. My colleague has a bunch more that are really, really awesome research that has been done on this. Helping to overcome that educational, their emotional negativity with educational stuff can be really helpful. And you might have to talk with them about these points. Um, conversation starters that can be helpful in that process, facilitating that process. Acceptance that can be the difference between life and death. That is the resilience factor. That is the match to that risk factor. Risk factor being thwarted belongingness. Resilience factor, let's offer acceptance. Let's get them plugged into community. Let's give um, the right pronouns. You know, all of these things. Harm reduction and becoming aware of the experience that trans person can have in getting active rescue. Letting cis folks know the importance of never outing them. That is an act of violence in the trans community. And if you out a trans person, that can end up in them getting killed. Gently guiding family members to use the correct language and pronouns. Gently, I should put an asterisk beside that because sometimes it might be not so gently. <laughs> but yeah, um, tr not so gently in that conversation to me would look like letting them know, you know, one of the number one reasons a trans person might end their life is rejection by family and you are helping to reject your family member. Loved ones might need to be talked to about this stuff and um, yeah, that can be a tough conversation to have, but um, practice helps a lot. So, you know, talking and role play is one thing that we do with operators. That can be a really helpful step in groups and things like that if you're a part of any like ally groups. I really recommend getting plugged into those and it can be good to have conversations with one another about. The risks of active rescue, I have been there and I will tell you firsthand from my lived personal experience that this can break a person down. Um, I will also tell you, however, that I would not be sitting here today if I were not active rescue um, about 12 years ago. Um, when a person is active rescue, they may be taken off their hormones, they may be taken off their meds in general and um, might be started from a clean slate during the 72-hour hold. This can lead to them being held if they are labeled non-compliant by a provider who is a member of opposition and um, hostile towards the trans community. They can label that person non-compliant because of the fact that they're trans and they can frame that in a way like this person's delusional and they're refusing to come in line with our treatment goals. So we're going to slap them into the state hospital and they're not going to get out again. I've seen it happen. Systemic violence and oppression. Trans folks have been killed for calling 911 to say, hey, I'm going to end my life. Will you please help me? The cops show up, shoot the person. They dead. Three people that happened last year. Misgendering and dead naming happens all the time. Finding these educational opportunities for cis allies can build that understanding. Um, understanding of the isolation, lack of support, being forced out into the street and being forced into crimes of survival due to the lack of job opportunities and discrimination when reaching out for jobs, um, self-harming and harm reduction, understanding that sometimes it's okay to do what it takes to get through that day and letting a person know that. We don't operate at the lifeline on an abstinence-only perspective with regards to self-harm and with substance use. Um, we let callers know that if you're coping and if you're still here tomorrow, we're glad that you're still here. We want you to find those coping strategies that are going to be the less harmful and hopefully not harming you in any way. We want you surviving and thriving, but sometimes 
you got to do what you got to do to be here. Transgender housing crisis and the youth homelessness statistics. California is one of the only places out by Riverside. There's a really good program. Um, transgender homelessness with runaways. It is heart wrenching. And as a parent of a trans kiddo, myself as a trans person and as a spouse of a trans person, the youth go through, I think, a really hard time when they are forced out into the streets and having to choose between being abused or running away. That is one thing that we do mandated reporting on at the lifeline. We will call CPS and we find that that's oftentimes one of the only ways to get help. Very, very recently, we rehoused a person who was being abused. Uh, an aunt of theirs had called the lifeline and told us about it. We got them help. Turns out CPS had already been notified. They had a, a case uh, record about as long as my leg and we had they had already been out there twice they got the kid rehoused and they're happy they called us back and are in a really positive situation about to turn 17. so the housing crisis and what's expected um support validation and affirmation first and foremost if you are offering the support validation and affirmation everything else will fall in line behind that and so i know we're short on time but just to give you a little bit of info and ask real quick if you had any questions. Um, I myself was intersex. I'm intersex. I received two non-consensual surgeries before the age of four. I was never told about this. This occurred from as long as I can remember I was dealing with this stuff, but they never explained what was really going on. I dealt with this in my peer group growing up with people my age and so on. Um, it's really tough. And so I wrestled with this my whole life growing up in Mississippi in a very like strict religious household that was very anti-trans and LGBT. Not good. Um, ended up finding this out much, much later in my 20s after I had already left home at 17. Anyway, long story short, the erasure process is something that has come under a lot of scrutiny and is changing. Um, Interact and other intersex advocates are working really, really hard to change the non-consensual surgeries and to change the erasure processes. Um, so I dealt with that not knowing made it a lot worse. Coming out and being rejected by family made it way worse. Um, I came out as, as gender non-conforming back in 2003, but I was not able to really come out as trans and begin my journey and um, transition, so to speak, until about six years ago. Um, as a parent who is trans and having a trans kiddo, there are very unique challenges and situational things that go into place there. We've had to create support groups around this type of stuff. Um, my spouse and I specifically have had to create support groups for parents of trans kids and um, parenting transgender children was already there. Um, there are lots of those challenges. So talking with others can be tough to find at first, but we are out there. Um, getting in touch with others who've had that similar lived experience can be a big help. So who the heck am I to be telling you all this stuff? Um, I am the very first staff operator. I was hired on. I started with the org back in 2015, shortly after it founded. And I am still the most operator. Historically, I've got the most calls and the most tenure out of everyone who's ever been involved. I am right now sitting at over 13,000 calls and at over 2,600 hours of talk time. Um, 
I still do my shift on the main trans lifeline side talking to trans people. In addition to that, I am coordinator for our family and friends line program. Was co-founder with Dr. Alpahide and have received just this year received the Gender Justice Longevity Award for my work in Washington State as well as the Service and Dedication Award back in 2016 from Trans Lifeline. Um, y'all can find out more in the resource pack if y'all are curious to find out more. Please check out our resource between my spouse and I. We have created a media outlet called Trans Matters Now. It operates a jobs board. Jobs are one of the major areas of need in the trans community. And so if you'll please tell people about that jobs group, all we do is we help pair trans people with jobs that will work for them. We help with finding work from home, work from, you know, remote, um, LGBTQ specific jobs is our specialty. We really want to find that first. Um, and so, yeah, Trans Job Connect on Facebook and the website transmattersnow.com. That's a very, very good question. We find that direct intervention can oftentimes be a really good way to go from there. We put in our resource pack what you can do instead of calling the police. There is a link to our Trans Lifeline blog. Um, that is a really good read. It's not always possible to do those things, um, but finding out and making allowances as much as possible. Um, if a person is able to physically go check on them, that is a really good step. And please don't worry about bothering the trans person if you are going to choose that over doing active rescue behind their back. Um, as a trans person, having been in that situation, I would much rather be pestered and nagged and like someone call me a hundred million times and just show up at my house. Um, and that's true for many, many callers that I've spoken with. We have seen that work. Um, physical distance, it might not be possible. Um, if you happen to know and are in like rapport and happen to know about any sort of like support group, social group or peer group that they're a part of, that can be a good way to find friends and find anyone at all that can physically go check on them. There's also a question Kat, about what do you mean by erasure? Yeah, definitely. Erasure is a process and oftentimes an active process or something that is being intentionally done to silence the narratives and voices and experience of trans individuals, um, even more so BIPOC trans individuals. Voices being talked over, and that's a, a good example, um, trans individuals being like left out of conversations, shaping strategy, um, affecting our trans population, that is another example. Um, for many years, the WPATH would operate without a lot of our guidance and input, and so that's changing very rapidly. Um, as more and more people become aware of these things, it is changing. And um, I hope that that answers your question, but this, you know, as another example with being an intersex person, um, a lot of medical providers are trained to not talk about the fact if a child is intersex. My colleague will talk more about the research that's done on this and about the specific science behind it, but there is a process of erasure and where intersex individuals might not be aware of the fact that they're intersex until later in life. Um, and even knowing that there's something going on, if they're asking questions, they may not be answered toward those questions. They may be like getting the runaround. They may be told like, you know, well, um, this or that. It's something where medical providers are 
trained to not tell a person if they're intersex and that's something that is uh, an awful awful thing um i hope that that answers your questions but this is true in many other areas like um shaping policy around our community Um, full disclosure, I think that they should be completely honest. If a person is going through this and it's their body, I think that from the age that they're able to understand, they should be given the information that pertains to their lived experience and what they're going to need to know. Um, obviously, if there's you know going to be trauma, that should be accounted for. But definitely, I believe in sharing that information freely um, with the individual that it's affecting. And exactly. Thank you, Dr. Alkali. The bathroom bills are also a very good example of an attempt to erase, erase our community and give us nowhere to go to the bathroom. What do you find what, are some of the trends, trends in the trans pipeline? Uh, what kind of things increase call volume? Um, and what kind of things, um, what are some of the patterns or uh, most common reasons for calling? Totally. So to give you a breakdown of the types of calls that we receive, the majority of calls we are getting are what we call category three calls. That means transition calls. Transition calls are where a person might be coming to terms with their gender. A loved one might be coming to terms with a family member transitioning, calling us to talk about how that is affecting them. Um, we will, on those types of calls, ask an open-ended question we'll kind of leave space for that person to process and vent, um, but making sure that they're not digging themselves a hole necessarily. Um, we don't want things to be going from where they're calling us to a worse place. So if talking with someone and finding that instead of de-escalating, if they're getting more and more and more escalated, sometimes that's a good opportunity to check back in and end the call. Um, but resource calls can take on they can go on and on and on and with take keeping in mind the trans theoretical stages of change persons might be considering transition or considering thinking about transition even for many many years before they're ever able to even tell someone and so then they might go through a phase of telling someone over and over and they might need to go through that phase for several years before they're ready to make plans and then so in the planning phase they might be going through that for a long time so keeping that in mind, I mean, those resource calls are the majority. We get a ton. Um, resource calls, category two, we get a ton of those where a caller is just looking for something to, you know, go forward with, going to a resource, getting medical care. Um, as far as specific trends, we get a lot of crisis calls, and they have continuously increased since COVID. Um, prior to that, during the time of the last election prior, um, our call volume skyrocketed after Trump got elected. And it really hasn't let up, just to be completely honest with you. And so any time that there is any sort of trans legislation or discussion around our community, we will get a huge spike in calls. Um, also around back to school and right now that has been a big thing um we get calls from a lot of family around like summer we have gotten a ton of calls about summer camps and things like that it was a big deal this year with 
kind of the reprieve from COVID for a little while. Um, and now back to school has been a major concern. Um, holidays, that is a really hard time for trans people. It is a time where you may be forced to go interact with family that are not accepting, or we may be reminded that we have mutually disowned family members. So um, that's another area that you might see a lot of inquiries around. And there are specific resources to deal with that too, like yourholidaymom.com, <laughs> um, where they provide support for LGBT folks around the holidays. Yeah, Stand In Families International, they're another really good one um, to offer that same sort of support. When our families turn their back on us, there are other loved ones who want to be that, like, um, who wants to be that stand-in family. Um, as far as any other trends that we experience, those are the major ones. For whatever reason, we get a ton of calls in May. I'm not exactly sure. Um, perhaps due to back to school, but yeah. I remember at one point uh, there were some t statistics during the last administration where uh, kind of the common call volume back then anyway was about 150 calls and they started noticing that the when the bathroom bills would come up it increased to like over 500 calls a day is that still the volume that you're dealing with yes we're dealing with between one to 300 calls per day um, oftentimes it's closer to 300 um, we are dealing with volunteer engagement it is really hard work and it is really, really hard to find individuals that are committed to doing the work, but first and foremost committed to their own self-care and resiliency. That's a really tough combination because sometimes it's like either choosing one or the other. Um, we want folks that are able to really take care of themselves and do the work too. Um, and we do our best to provide. We have job opportunities at the Lifeline. We have um, different opportunities that are not call-based. Like we do these sorts of educational things as an organization. Um, we also have the microgrants program. So that is all about providing name changes and documentation changes. I mentioned it earlier. Um, that pays for inmate commissary funds around the holidays. It's a really neat program where when we as trans individuals and specifically more so BIPOC trans individuals disproportionately being locked up. We will be needing to talk with family members and loved ones around the holidays and that's a really hard time because there are not a ton of ways to do that um, and oftentimes our options for support are limited with families. So microgrants pays for a prisoner's commissary account around the holidays and that is one way that we are um, demonstrating our commitment to full abolition of the prison system uh, <laughs> and to drop that on y'all but that is a way that we help out not just in taking calls so we have all kinds of programs um, check out our blog we just redid our website a couple months ago and we have a ton of new information at translifeline.org um, and our blog section too thank you Kat um, I, I want to be clear uh, Kat has mentioned a couple of times that uh, I helped co-found the sofa line. I, I, I think I was uh, a minuscule part of it. Um, Kat has by no means done the lion's share of the work. I would say 99% of the work on the sofa line. So, uh, you know, you rock, 
cat. So just just saying. Well, that is so kind. Thank you so very much. That means that means such a great deal to me to hear that. Thank you. You're amazing. Y'all are amazing for being here, for being present and taking this all in. I know this is really tough conversation and tough um, statistics, and it's a tough problem. But fortunately, we're really tough to be doing the work and um, taking care of ourselves first. It's awesome. And feel free to go back and ask Kat directly, um, even during my Q&A. Uh, she definitely is the expert on all of this. Um, I think the other resource uh, and area of expertise that Kat has um, is talking daily to um, support trans folks in crisis uh, and knowing kind of just what are some things that are most common, most helpful, but also in working with the um, sofa line the significant others friends and family uh having to deal with um family members who don't know what to say to the the friends or family members who might be bullying or um who are very hostile and rejecting and they want to support their trans loved one and they're not sure what to say um and i think cat also has uh experience at sowing a lot of seeds uh, in terms of those those examples, um, quite a bit of expertise and comes off the top of her head very quickly. Well, thank you so much for noticing that. Um, that's awesome. Thank you. So yeah, I, I actually have an acronym that I share with operators in training um, that I have found personally helpful because those what to say moments where there's that awkward silence and they just told you something really serious and really important, but you don't know what to say back. Um, I will share my acronym for dealing with that. Um, ORS, O-A-R-S, and I'm going to type it into the chat. O for open-ended question. Um, just keep asking them, like, what's up? How are you? What can we help you with? Like, um, what are you hoping to get out of this? What is it that you're wanting to walk away from here and have? Um, open-ended questions, um, an affirming statement, statements of affirmation. If you're hearing them express something positive, reinforce that. If you're hearing them express a lot of negative, try and work to find something positive throughout all of that, even if it's just that they're working on talking about it and venting about it and letting it out so they don't have to carry it around. Um, finding that point of affirmation is a good place to go from the opening question. And then R for reflective listening. Um, make sure that they know that you're there and paying attention and you know the mm-hmms and that kind of stuff can go a long way, um, as well as on the other hand, if you hear someone say something really crooked and misgender someone or whatever, reflecting it back to them like, whoa, 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 wait, did I just hear you say this? Can you explain that? Like, what do you mean by that? Um, that can be a way to kind of work in that situation. So um, reflective listening and then S for summarize. If you're wanting to just kind of wrap up everything that they've told you so far and figure out what's your next steps. Let's let's end this interaction or this this meeting or session. Um, summarizing can be a good way to kind of remind them of everything you talked over. If you went over resources, it can help them remember the resources and bring them back to the here and now, back to the present moment so they can go on from there. Um, I found that helpful even if I have to repeat this process over and over and over. I found that ORS is a really good way to muddle through some of the more difficult interactions I've had.
Thank you for having us. And thank you, Kat, for an awesome presentation. Um, again, uh, Kat is a wonderful resource uh, and has a lot of expertise. Um, part of me thinks I should try and uh, see if I can get a get her into the, the mental health field more directly um, to train us all. So, um, but we do wanna take a deeper dive. Uh, how I got started in this is um, I, I've been working for a long time at United American Indian Involvement uh, as a clinical supervisor, licensed psychologist. And um, however, I am part of the LGBTQ community. My wife and I have been together for 20 years. Uh, we have three kids and a granddaughter. Um, our oldest daughter is 25. We have a granddaughter who's five. Uh, and then we have two sons and all of them are adopted. Um, two sons are, I am actually the only white person in my family. So um, my wife, uh, her nickname for me is entitled white girl, um, which it's true. <laughs> uh, and so one of the reasons I got involved in um, learning about the transgender community and gender non-conforming community is, you know, my wife challenged me at one point to, to that as part of the LGBT community, um, you know, really the transgender community really started all of this off with Stonewall and other uh, revolutions back in the 60s. Uh, and we wouldn't be here if we didn't have the trans community to stand on their shoulders. And so at some level as a person of, uh, who's a member of the community, I feel like we have a responsibility to, to make sure we are taking care of each other. Uh, and I don't think we've done a very good job in terms of supporting and advocating for the trans community. So that was one of the reasons why I started to get involved and curious and educate myself and also wanted to present some more uh, with, with the, within the departmental health and take advantage of opportunities at UCLA, et cetera. So thank you for having me. Um, so, you know, one of the things I wanna focus on uh, and Kat alluded to this is a key correlation. Um, in, in my opinion, understanding uh, transgender bodies and their experience um, is really best understood if we understand intersex. Uh, and I don't know how many of you actually uh, have heard of intersex or are familiar with intersex uh, as a variant of sex development, um, but it really, if you understand it well, it can be a key to effective psychoeducation uh, about transgender bodies, especially within religious communities, uh, at least I have found. And so that's one of the reasons why I like to talk a little more about it and make sure we understand it. Um, so we're looking really quickly, what is intersex? It's an umbrella term for differences in sex traits or reproductive anatomy. Um, so this can include uh, differences in genitalia, hormones, internal anatomy or chromosomes, okay? And these are compared to the two typical ways that um, people can develop, you know, is binary more male or female. Um, it, what we realize is that it's much more complex than that. And the interesting thing is some intersex traits show up at birth. Um, sometimes it's obvious that somebody is intersex and sometimes it doesn't show up until puberty or later in life. Uh, and so really it becomes an issue um, 
because it's part of our our the continuum of sex development and but we don't know it always so i want to help us understand a little bit about intersex bodies um so the estimates vary that some say about one in every two thousand people which which would result in about three to four million people worldwide that are intersex but i really think it's under reported because uh, again, just what I just mentioned is that you don't often, we don't find out until much later. Uh, and so I think that there's a lot of people who are intersex who either don't know it uh, or are embarrassed uh, about their intersex uh, identity or condition that they don't understand. Uh, many people don't find out about it until they're adults. So it could be as frequent or as common as uh, people with red hair. And uh, they say that usually it can be any, I've heard anywhere statistics from like 1.7% of the world population uh, up to about 4% have red hair. So we could be looking at 124 million people worldwide who are intersex. Um, and again, as Kat mentioned earlier, almost 20% of intersex people are also transgender. And we're gonna look at why that might be. So some of the conditions just to, I'm just gonna go over a couple of them, um, just to familiarize you with some of the names, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, androgen insensitivity syndrome, hypospadias, we're gonna talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, I've heard it mentioned that um, at one time there was up to 34 different types of intersex bodies. Um, and all of these are known as differences of sex development. So it's just a combination of chromosomes, genes, enzymes, and hormones that could be different in combination. So here's an example of an intersex condition. It's called hypospadias. And interestingly enough, the CDC actually says it's one of the most common intersex conditions, and it affects one out of every 200 boys. So there could be people on this um, training who have hypospadias. And basically it means that the urethra doesn't have an opening to urinate at the top of the penis. Instead, it's somewhere located further down on the penis itself. Um, whether sometimes it's at the base, sometimes it's in the middle, sometimes it's a little closer to the top. It, and the interesting thing is that the penis functions normally except in extreme cases, for example, if there's no opening whatsoever. Um, but often what would happen is whenever somebody would find this, they would think even though it was functioning normally and you still could urinate normally, they, it was thought that, oh, a boy needs to know how to stand to pee because it wasn't maybe considered male enough. Um, and so it, who was it bothering? Was it bothering the kid or was it bothering the parents and the adults? Uh, and maybe related to um, things like gender socialization uh, or toxic masculinity or even misogyny, okay? Um, so let's dive deeper. Uh, let me ask you a question and um, Kat or uh, one of the co-hosts since I can't really see the chat at this point. Um, you know, when do we usually perform surgery on someone's body or remove a body part? Uh, but, you know, do we just, typically remove any body part or is there a reason that we would do something like that? Why do we do surgery on people's body parts usually? Usually because there's something wrong there. There's something that doesn't work. 
um, you know, we have amputations sometimes because a body part may be diseased or there's an infection and we want to protect the rest of the body uh, or it's not functional at all. Um, so usually there's something wrong with it and it doesn't work or it needs repairing somehow because it's not functional. Uh, if somebody has cancer in something, we want sometimes we want to remove it again to protect the rest of the body. Okay, so usually there's a problem. Okay, but interestingly enough, um, in surgery is performed regularly on intersex people, but they're not really medically necessary. So we're going to talk about how this came about. So um, you, maybe some of you have heard of the idea of having sex uh, assigned at birth um, instead of, you know, are you born male or born female? And, uh, you know, maybe some of you are wondering, well, how do, what do they even mean by that? Well, one of the things that you find out when you dive a little deeper is that um, there's actually a little bit of arbitrary decision-making in terms of determining gender in babies. So often it's determined by how long the clitoris is or how long the penis is. So I'll give you uh, an example. The Intersex Society of North America came up with this. It's called the phallometer. And uh, one of the things that often, this was based on actual current medical standards. If a girl, if, if their clitoris was under three eighths of an inch long, then they would say, hey, it's a girl. Okay. If a boy's penis for sure is over one inch, then it's, you know, for sure it's a boy. But if either one of those is in the middle, in the purple section, um, sometimes they would have genital surgeries performed in order to move the kid one way or another. So sometimes um, a girl who had a clitoris who was a little longer in that purple section might actually have a clitorectomy um, and reduce the size of the clitoris in order to make it more seem like a typical girl. Uh, for boys, sometimes they also, if their penis wasn't long enough, sometimes they actually had pen their penis removed and they were automatically assigned to being a girl. That's one of the reasons why we there, there is this um, change in terminology to say sex that was assigned at birth, because it can be arbitrary. Who gets to decide where and when? And, and think about it, okay? Surgeries on infants, newborns, okay? To decide for them and, and on bodies that maybe don't need it. It's not medically necessary. Who does it bother? Does it bother the infant? No, it bothers the adults, okay? So uh, this is a satirical example, but it, it is based on some actual medical standards um, that are very arbitrary, okay? So it, it's an attempt to try and address the things that keep um, shame, secrecy, and unwanted genital plastic surgery for children who have mixed sex anatomy. So <clears throat> surgery, this can, this, the typical treatment for intersex children that actually, my understanding, and I could be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong, to be honest, um, I don't think I am. I've heard um, that the Human Rights Watch actually considers genital surgery as a human rights violation <laughs> on children. Um, so, uh, so 
<clears throat> so for surgery, um, sometimes on infants as young as six months old, um, and sometimes they're asked to have surgeries repeatedly, yearly, in order to try and conform to a gender assignment. Okay, so for example, uh, it's impossible to put an adult vagina in an infant. So often you would need to have repeated surgeries to lengthen the vagina that you constructed surgically. surgically. And also you would need things like dilators to keep the holes open. I mean, this sounds horrendous to me. Um, and then often, sometimes, even though we're going to talk a little bit about that, sometimes people were surgically assigned a girl or a boy, they would still actually feel the opposite of what they were assigned and usually told to keep it a secret. And one of the things that was common is that there's a lot of scarring, pain. There's actually diminished sexual pleasure in, in um, adults who've had genital surgeries. Um, I would even go as far to say as the mutilations. Um, they have an inability to have orgasms, loss of reproductive ability, higher levels of anger, depression, and shame, all as a result of the adults feeling uncomfortable that the kid wasn't male or female enough. Some uh, folks have received hormone treatments to try and make them their bodies conform to a certain uh, look or uh, clinical clinical um, standard. So I'll give you an example, a colleague um, of mine, uh, a friend of Kat's as well, um, <clears throat> you know, was uh, really felt as a kid that he was a boy, even though he was assigned female at birth. And I do have his permission to use this example, but um, he, he said that for 30 years, he took female hormones um, and he was miserable. Um, however, on the outside, he was very successful. He had a job, he was a professor, a very popular, excellent teacher, uh, had a family, but there were a lot of huge side effects uh, for having to be subjected to the kind of the levels of hormones. And when he found out later is that the level of hormones that he was on were similar to those that uh, a woman who was nine months pregnant has. Uh, and he had those all his life. Um, some kids actually don't get any intervention at all, uh, and they are the least traumatized um, because they actually uh, are, their bodies are allowed to remain as is. So doctors say that there's only two types of surgery on newborns that are medically, quote, medically necessary. Um, and this is when babies are born with some parts of the genitalia or reproductive organs outside of their body instead of inside. So for example, if they're born with testes or ovaries outside of their body, obviously that's not functional. So um, they would need to have surgeries to place them back inside. The other medically necessary surgery on newborn is when there's no hole available for a person to urinate. Obviously excretion is a key bodily function. Uh, and so would the person would not be able to survive without that. But those doctors say those are the only two medically necessary genital surgeries on newborns. Um, and yet there are so many others that are still done. <clears throat> so I'm gonna play uh, a trailer right now. My mother let it slip once. When you were born, they didn't know if you were a girl or a boy. And she giggled. <laughs> My parents were told they should just take me home, dress me in yellow and green, give me a nickname, 
and wait to see. You know, it's not just male, it's not just female. I'm intersex. Sorry, society, because it would have been so simple if it was just male and female. But you're going to have to change your mind now. Intersex! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Intersex isn't uncommon, it's just unheard of. Doctors became increasingly aggressive to try to make sure that everybody looked clearly male or looked clearly female. There was this real authoritativeness about this is what we do for these children. I had more than a dozen surgeries before I was 10. They decided to remove my clitoris because it was too big for a normal girl. All my parents' friends that I remembered from childhood all knew that my parents had a boy who disappeared and then they had a girl and there wasn't any explanation. There's two entries, one that says nice wee lad and another one that says sex determined as female. I was told to pass as a boy, I was taught to strive to be as boy-like as possible. It's absurd, I can't measure up to being male. People treated me like a freak, they cut me up, they harmed me in ways that prevent me from being romantically or sexually intimate with people. I'm very angry at the genitals that were taken away from me. We have created this cycle of, oh my God, we have to fix it, shame it, hide it, and then there's another intersex birth. You've never talked about the one that might be your neighbor. I love being intersex. I just wish they didn't fuck with my body so much, you know? Love your kids that are different. There's lots of us that don't fit the two standard boxes. I am different because I was born different. And you were different because you was born different. I mean, I do cross the female box when I have to choose one, but my body isn't female. There's more to being a man or a woman than just a genital. People have genitals. People are not genitals. I know that's hard to believe because we've all met a lot of pricks in our lives. Okay, I like what he said at the end. People have genitals, they are not genitals. So this is a slide, uh, Tiger DeVore, who was in that uh, trailer. Um, he did a lot of uh, public speaking, especially in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, I haven't seen him much lately, but um, it could be um, maybe because I have just haven't been looking. Um, but he had that condition that we talked about earlier, hypospadias. And so remember, he said he had more than a dozen surgeries before he was 10. Um, and he describes in the movie how uh, during the summers, you know, when most kids got to not go to school and play and have fun, he was always doing surgeries to lengthen or um, change the, gen the, the constructed genitals that they had for him uh it, they he was growing so they needed to change it so every year he had to have surgery and was isolated and alone um and he says you know even though they tried to get him to be able to stand to pee he still has to sit to pee so really it was unsuccessful um and he said i would have just been fine to have a penis that peed out of the bottom and it worked it still worked instead he feels very damaged Okay, so how did this all get started? Um, so some of you, Kat mentioned uh, Dr. John Money earlier. Um, back in the mid 60s, um, he's the one who actually pioneered the um, intersex treatment, uh, medical treatment for intersex 
um, bodies, sadly. Uh, and I think, you know, he was probably doing the best he could, but he believed that, you know, nurture could overcome nature. And so one of the things that he did, there was a set of twins called the Reimer family and the Reimer twins, and there were two boys. And here's how he tested out his, um, his theory. Uh, both kids were assigned male at birth because they had no penises, um, or they had penises, sorry, but one infant had, one of the boys had his penis destroyed in a botched circumcision. So what they decided to do was to, quote, raise the child as a girl instead. So they switched his name from David to Brenda, and the parents went along with this. After all, he was the expert, right? So Dr. Money oversaw the rearing of the child as a female. So the infant was operated on um, and surgically assigned as female and renamed Brenda and raised as a girl. For many, many years, it was believed to be excess, a success. Dr. Money published tons and tons of papers attesting to the success of nature being able to overcome biology and raise this uh, kid as a girl. However, the reality was that this kid was miserable. Okay. When he was told at age 14 about the experiment, he immediately went back to being a boy. He was miserable being a girl, um, and probably because emotionally and physiologically, that's not who he identified gender-wise. Uh, and so he immediately transitioned to calling himself David. And the next several years, he went on public television to try and advocate against these surgeries. Sadly, though, he took his own life in 2004. So uh, this was not the success that Dr. Money had suggested. Um, the, the sad thing is that Dr. Money was considered a world-renowned expert during all that time, several, a couple of decades. And so the Reimer case established the rationale for operating on intersex babies. You could basically believing that you could impose a baby's gender through surgery and parenting. And, you know, there was this stigma, okay? Uh, somehow there was this belief that the kid's not going to grow up healthy if they aren't either or, okay? Um, and, and, and so this was the basis for the treatment of uh, operating on uh, newborns uh, on their genitalia. There um, was a landmark study, however, that was done later. Um, there were 16 boys. This is the Reiner and Gearhart study. 16 boys with a rare intersex condition. Um, they were genetically boys, but they were born without penises. That's part of uh, intersex bodies sometimes, right? And so what they did was, again, because medical treatment said, hey, you should operate on these kids. So 14 of them had gender reassigned to girls. So socially, legally, and surgically, okay, 14 of these boys had their vaginas surgically constructed, okay, because they didn't have a penis. And so they just automatically said, okay, you should be girls. So let's create a vagina for you. There were two of the parents, though, who said, no, -uh, we're not going to go along with this. And so they, they kept the boys as boys, even though they didn't have penises. And they said, you know what, we're not going to go along with this you know, but we'll be part of the study. So the results, they, they followed these kids over the course of three to eight years. And remember, 14 of them had gender reassigned to girls and all had surgically constructed vaginas. What they found later is five out of the 16 were, li were living as females. Three of them, however, were living with unclear sexual identity. Two of them later declared themselves male. Eight were actually living as males, even though they had had their gender and were raised as girls, OK? 
okay? Um, two out of those boys were the ones who didn't have any changes. Um, even though they had surgery, four of them insisted they were boys. Um, of the five who were raised as girls, when they learned that their own medical history was that they were operated on and had their gender reassigned, they all said, oh, that explains a lot. So they could tell something was wrong, um, but they didn't know what. And of course, the family never talked about it, all right? 10 kids felt that regardless of their external genitalia or how they were raised, they were boys, okay? And they said all 16 had moderate to marked interests and attitudes that were stereotypically uh, typical of males. So <clears throat> intersex advocates now, people who were traumatized by medical interventions, remember, skull surgeries can cause permanent scarring, okay? Uh, it can cause um, in a decreased, if not uh, removal of all sexual functioning. How would you like that if you were unable to have sex? Um, you know, it, it just is uh, very traumatic. Um, and so <clears throat> intersex started to advocate against um, operating on newborns. And one of the things they said was, you know, one, uh, um, Ultrasounds aren't necessarily accurate, okay? You can try and see the baby's uh, genitals and try and figure out what sex they are, but you can't always tell if they're intersex. Uh, and so once the baby's born, then you find out the baby's intersex. The other thing they say is, who are we changing the genitals for? Are they for the kid? Because the, 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 there's a medically necessary reason, or is it because the parents and the adults that are in the kid's life are uncomfortable, okay? And then the other concern they advocated for was um, parents giving consent to a procedure that's irreversible, okay? It can have a negative and harmful effect on the child's gender identity, sexual fun functioning, as well as psychological functioning. They also argue, argued, which the Human Rights Watch has followed up with, that these kind of uh, genital mutilations on newborns are actually human rights violations. And yet, doctors still do some of these. Um, un unfortunately, that I have videos. Uh, there's a couple of them. Uh, this one, uh, we're going to watch really quick, maybe a piece of it. Uh, thinking time-wise. Um, actually, and I'll let you just uh, watch those on your own. Uh, if you click on these links, you actually have linked to the video. Um, <clears throat> but there, there's 2017, 2018, there's Dr. Shore talking about how they still were doing some of these surgeries. And there's interviews. There was a, a movie that came out, maybe I'm sure some of you have seen it, that Katie Kirk did called Gender Revolution. And she actually, uh, it came out in 2017, I think. Um, and she interviews a, a surgeon, a urologist, who still was advocating for uh, gender surgeries on intersex babies in 2017, okay? Um, <clears throat> so there's a, some conservatives and people who are kind of transphobic um, will come up with hypothetical arguments. They imagine that a kid would say, Oh, why didn't you make me have this surgery sooner? Um, I don't, I, I may be wrong when somebody can correct me if I am wrong. Um, I don't know too many intersex people who have asked that, who have said, oh, please, please let me have the surgery sooner. Um, why didn't you do it sooner? Um, 
And one of the response the intersex sex advocates say is, you know, if you want to try and encourage parents to allow the kid to have a choice, uh, and there's way too many medical and psychological risks for harm to allow those kind of surgeries to continue. So sometimes, uh, as providers, some of you may work in hospitals, uh, some of you who work in clinics maybe adjacent to a medical community, um, or somebody might show up in um, your outpatient clinic. Uh, if parents are considering surgical intervention with intersex kids, you know, we, we're taught that you shouldn't uh, tell people what to do. Um, you know, I wish we were at the point where uh, a doctor doing genital surgeries was reportable, but we're not there yet. Um, and uh, even though it's considered a human rights violation by Human Rights Watch. Um, and <clears throat> uh, But so one of the things we wanna do as clinicians is help parents really explore the pros and cons of medical intervention, um, including the idea of waiting until the kid can make the medical decision for themselves. Um, often parents are encouraged, hopefully more often now, to kind of let the kid figure out what their gender is. Usually by the time a kid is three or four, they have some idea of what their gender is. And if a kid is intersex, you wanna let that happen naturally. Um, be, again, the risk is to make you comfortable as a parent and as in the other adults in their lives, you have the potential to permanently scar and take away sexual functioning, uh, and you're trying to repair surgically something that works fine, uh, and there's no medically necessary reason for this. Um, there are a lot of resources. Uh, there's a handbook for parents of intersex kids. Um, I could uh, submit those, add those to the resources that we have. Um, uh, you wanna explore the parent's fear of what would, what do they imagine life would be like without the kid getting surgery? Are they worried the kid's gonna get bullied? Or are they worried they're not gonna be female enough or uh, male enough? Um, I'll tell you as a mom of kids myself, um, you know, my kids get bullied for anything, right? Uh, my kids had braces when they were in second grade because of some conditions. And some of their peers said, oh, we don't want to talk to you anymore because you have braces. So, you know, I think it's just a natural human thing to, um, sadly, uh, for some kids to be bullied and to find any reason to um, put others down. Um, and most of us have some sense of why that can happen. Um, so yeah, of course you can normalize. It's, it's understandable they're worried about bullying, but the reality is kids get bullied for stuff regardless of their gender identity. Um, gender socialization, you know, we have to help parents expand that a male and a female don't have to look one way, right? Um, you want to help the parents explore what their fears of life would be like for the parents if the kid did not get surgery. Would they be feel like they're keeping a secret? Um, you know, then you help them talk about how do you have age appropriate conversations with your kid about them being intersex, um, and tell them what what are the implications. Um, and you know, as you saw in that trailer, there was uh, one person. Um, I think her name is Hilda, who is um, intersex and has identified as both for a long time or one or the other, um, but she, 
they grew up in a in an accepting family and and they actually have a healthy sex life as a result and they don't feel a compulsion to do one or the other um to be what somebody else wants them to be so so he may be asking, okay, how does this relate to transgender bodies? Well, uh, as Kat mentioned earlier, all of us were intersex at one time. Uh, we're gonna see a video on that in a minute, um, but we're not cr simply created male or female. All of us are, have both uh, a clitoris um, that can with testosterone, testosterone can impact the development in, in utero. And what happens is sometimes it becomes a clitoris, sometimes it becomes a penis, sometimes it's a little bit of both um, or somewhere in the middle. Um, we are, but all of us start out this way. And so I, I find this especially helpful in religious communities where they say, oh, God made us male and female only. Well, actually, no, uh, we all start out as intersex. So often um, <clears throat> critics of transgender kids and adults, uh, they have arguments against transitions in general. They have, you know, somebody asked earlier about erasure. Well, you know, erasure is, I don't believe you exist and that you're legit uh, and we shouldn't have to accommodate to you. And so, you, you know, it's, I don't want to be politically correct. That's BS, right? Um, it's a lot of times conservative uh, may argue against, because they, some of it's fear, right? It's projection of transphobia. Uh, onto the community. So some of the arguments say that, you know, this is just an overly permissive parenting style. You know, I don't let my kid choose their dinner. How can you let them choose their gender? Okay, that's assuming that that actually is a choice. Uh, and sometimes you, you may have seen some of the videos that say, well, when did you choose to be straight? Let's talk about your sexual orientation. Or when did you choose to be a boy? When did you choose to be a girl? Um, usually they can't answer that. Um, some other um, critics will say, well, they're denying the reality of their birth and their anatomy. You know, um, they have a penis, so they should be a boy. Okay, and there's actually a, a fancy sounding um, group that's called the American College of Pediatricians. Uh, and they think that being trans or intersex uh, and allowing a kid to transition or even a teenager to transition is a form of child abuse. But the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center has actually um, looked into this and, and this American College of Pediatricians has a website. They're actually an, an anti-LGBT fringe group um, that uses a lot of junk science, but many of them are doctors or pretend to be one, I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with the people that make up the group. Um, but they seem very um, legit in the way they present their information. Um, and again, uh, you know, my colleague uh, talked about his experience with his kids in school. Um, you know, one of his kids was a second grader when he transitioned from female to male. And, um, you know, the, the school, the school, uh, you know, their reaction was, oh, poor kid, why are the parents doing this to the kid? Um, why can't they wait until they're older? This is making it about them. Um, and so, and actually they overheard comments like this. Uh, and so there was a lot of pathologizing of the trans adult, you know, but the reality of the kid's experience was the kid was super happy because, um, and I'll go to, to this next point, it says for adults, you know, one of the criticisms is, 
why should we pay medically uh, insurance wise for um, surgery, gender confirmation surgery or hormone treatment for trans people? Why should we cover it? Uh, it's so expensive. Well, I'll give you an example. My colleague who transitioned uh, said that, you know, there, it's, a, it's several points in his life. He was actively suicidal on all kinds of medications. Uh, the hormone treatment started to have a really deleterious effect on his body. Uh, and at one point he was in the hospital for multiple organ failure uh, and was hospitalized for a long time. They were using off-label anti-dementia and anti-seizure drugs to try and treat his depression. L long history of uh, therapy to try and cope with the, the dysphoria that he experienced. And so the kid's experience actually was after the, the, the parent transitioned, the parent was healthy. Because one of the things that happened after, finally, finally, when he was on the verge, he was, he was on the verge of dying, um, his care team said, why don't you, he got a new care team, and his care team said, why don't you transition to Mayo? And he did, and he got off all of his medications. He became physically healthy, um, needs no no hormones, um, physically was healthier than he'd ever been. And mental health wise, he didn't need any medication anymore. The only problems he had were the transphobia that he experienced in society. That was the most difficult thing that he had to cope with. Physically and socially, in terms of, uh, and psychologically, he was healthier than he'd ever been. Um, and the kids were happy. Oh my gosh, my parent is not dying. They're not in the hospital. They're not super depressed. Um, they're actually available and emotionally present and able to play with me. So the kid was ecstatic. <laughs> the kid didn't care, right? Who's the people that cared about the, the, what a male and female should be? And, and it was the parents um, and the, the teachers in schools. Um, so we have a lot to learn. So moms of trans kids will say, um, there are some that have said, you know, they had a trans kid and, and this particular mom of a, a trans girl that was name was Allie. They said, you know, before she transitioned, she had constant anxiety, panic attacks. She said to me at one point, what happens when I die? Will I be a girl then? So she was actually asking her mom for permission to die in order to be a girl. She was suicidal at seven, okay? Um, that's how impactful this dysphoria can be. Um, and as you saw in the video, you know, there's a lot of hormonal and biological correlates to this wiring in terms of being transgender. So it makes sense that maybe her biology doesn't fit with what her hormones wired her to be in, in utero. There's a link here. Uh, there's a, a BIPOC mom, uh, a, I think it's a black mom of a trans kid who talks about her experience of realizing, I think she's also a social worker, realizes that her kid is trans and it's an excellent video. Uh, I don't wanna take the time to watch that as well. But one of the things that happens with, um, with transgender kids is that puberty becomes an emergency. It's super scary, okay? They're scared that their body's gonna change and betray who they are and who they wanna be. And so some of the treatments of choice, and we need to be aware of these as mental health clinicians and providers, because these are really important. 
Um, these, like for example, puberty blockers. Um, you know, the most probably famous personality we know is Jazz Jennings um, in terms of watching her own transition and, and being able to watch uh, even some of the medical things that she experienced. And puberty blockers basically um, put a pause button on, on puberty. And it allows the parents and the family a few more years of kind of deciding what, what do they want to do with the, these feelings? What do they want to do? What does the, a transition or not look like? Because not everybody transitions, right? Um, and the interesting thing is if you go off puberty blockers, they'll go directly back into their birth sex uh, and the puberty will continue, okay? At some point though, they may want to go on cross hormones and physically transform their body into alignment with their gender identity. So one of the things we want to remember is uh, there's a lot of research that talks about the significant impact that family rejection or acceptance has. Um, and like we saw in that video, the parent was just, okay, this was a normal thing. There's a, um, in the actual PBS special, uh, it's called Nine Months That Made You. It's totally worth, um, I think I bought it for like six bucks or something on um, iTunes, um, the series. And the, the whole episode, it's interesting because they, they have a video segment where um, that kid who just transitioned to male goes into school the very next day and the school teacher just announces, okay, this was Carla. Now this is going to be her name, to, you know, the, the, the kid's name. And they actually use the correct pronouns unlike myself just right then. Um, and they just, the kids just welcome him. And it's a, it's a normal part of the variation of life. Uh, and there was no problems. Uh, and the teacher made sure that, you know, this is acceptable and we need to affirm them. And this is just part of who they are. But we know and research shows that parental rejection on LGB kids, not excluding transgender, because I think transgender kids have a more difficult time emotionally because of the transphobia, parental rejection increases um, uh, in psychological distress. Kids are more, eight times more likely to attempt suicide, six times more likely to report high levels of depression, three times more likely to use illegal drugs, three times more likely to be at risk for HIV and STDs. So parental rejection is a mental health issue. We know it in general, just with kids who don't have LGBT issues, okay? But if, if they are, it actually increases their risk, okay? So family rejection looks like physical abuse, verbal harassment or name calling, excluding you from family events, blocking their access to friends, events, and resources. Um, I know that's a big deal. You need to feel like you belong somewhere and that there are other people um, who are like me and I'm not alone. And I know that's one of the, the things that um, the Trans Lifeline uh, helps uh, other trans folks do is, is access their community. Uh, and so they, and, and that's one of the reasons why the peer-to-peer -peer support is so crucial, so that they know they're not alone, okay? They're not the only one going through this. So other family rejection, blaming the kid when they're discriminated against, okay? So if a kid experiences bullying or harassment, you know, see, if you didn't want to be trans or if you didn't want to be gay or whatever, then you wouldn't go through this, okay? 
um, telling the, the kid that God will punish them, et cetera. So some of you are probably uh, familiar with this. The good news is the parental acceptance can actually impact very positively, okay? So with parental acceptance, if they live in an extremely accepting family, often some of the, the research shows that 92% of kids who live in extremely accepting families have this belief that they're gonna have a happy and productive life. Isn't that what we want, right? Um, if a slightly less accepting family, at least 77%, uh, very little accepting family, 60%, not at all accepting family. Still, there are some very resilient kids, 35% go, oh, okay, I'm still gonna have a happy and productive life. I'd be willing to bet it's because they're connected to a community outside of their family. So if we don't have these conversations as clinicians, we actually could be colluding and um, contributing to deterioration in people's mental health, okay? Without these types of conversations, the suicide rate in children and youth is actually higher, trans children and youth is actually higher than that of adults. Do you know why? It says their rate for trans and non-binary youth, um, 60%. Uh, and at least 82% have considered suicide. Do, does anybody have any idea why? Think about it. If you're a kid or a youth, you have less experience in your life and you have less developed coping skills. Uh, and, and your brain is going through this kind of pruning process. Um, you know, we know a lot of teenagers and we know when we were teenagers, we didn't always make the best choices, right? Um, and so that's why, okay, when you're in a lot more pain, that's something that looks appealing. Um, there's a couple links to some 2020 studies on trans youth, um, one from the Trevor Project. Uh, I can't remember who the publisher or the other one is. Um, but again, if you meet a transgender person, almost one out of two have either attempted suicide or considered it. Um, almost, I can almost guarantee. Um, and 92% of, in this one study, individuals reported having attempted suicide before the age of 25, before 25, transitional age youth, that's a key age, and even younger than that, especially for trans kids, okay? Um, the top seven actual suicide risk factors, um, and there's also uh, a complementary resilience factors. We, uh, I think James and Kat may have that on their... Um, on their uh, information resources packet. Um, but, you know, some of these rejection and lack of support increase risk of suicidality. Um, experiencing discrimination increases uh, suicidality, right? Um, who've lost a job for being trans. Okay, 54, 50% more likely to have attempted suicide, okay? experiencing shame about being trans or about their bodies are more likely to be suicidal. Um, trans people are more easily identifiable as trans. So sometimes if somebody transitions post-puberty, okay, they may be less uh, likely to pass as the gender that they identify as, even though we need to broaden our um, understanding of what is a male or a female or non-binary person. We need to expand our definitions, right? Instead of forcing everybody to look a certain way. Um, but they face much more discrimination, okay? 
Um, trans people who survive trans-related violence and abuse are substantially more likely to attempt suicide. Okay, um, just PTSD. Okay, um, and trans folks in general have a higher risk for um, suicide. It's not because it's they shouldn't be trans, right? It's because of transphobia. They're much more likely. First of all, their their body is not cooperating, right? Um, and then second of all, um, they experience a desire for erasure, right? The, the, the society is actively trying to um, eliminate them and wishes they weren't here often, okay? Um, our, our uh, I can't even go there. Um, so again, the other thing that's uh, number seven and talks about the intersectionality. Trans folks often belong to other minority groups and experience minority stress. So the highest murder rate in the country belongs to trans women of color, okay? So just by virtue of being a trans woman of color, your risk for dying of murder increases substantially, okay? That's not okay, all right? And a lot of that's due to misogyny. Um, a lot of that's due to transphobia. Okay, so let's talk about briefly and then wrap up. Um, how do we be more affirming? Okay, uh, posters least indicating. I think ones with more with transgender issues. I think are even better. Okay, we're we're everywhere, right? Um, in terms of how to adjust your interventions, uh, for some of you who are in medical settings. Um, you know, we want to ask for even outpatient, we want to ask more open-ended questions about intake, uh, in intake about sexual orientation, gender identity. Instead of just assuming, and I've done this, you know, you don't even ask about gender identity, right? You just check off male or female. Instead, have a conversation, you know, ask the, the kid or the adult uh, or the transitional age youth, how do you define your gender identity? Um, you know, you even ask and give them options, male, female, bigender, agender, transgender. How do you describe it? Um, how would you define your sexual orientation, right? Make time to actually ask instead of just checking off the box for them. Ask them what their gender pronouns are, not what their preferred pronouns, okay? Because that, that assumes that again, that gender is, oh, today I just woke up and decided to be the opposite sex, okay? It was just kind of a flippant decision. In medical settings, ask, be, be specific and ask, what special care are they looking for? Why do you think it's important to their care? What type of birth control are you looking for? Just because somebody presents as masculine or feminine, don't assume you know what kind of birth control they want because <laughs> you'll actually shut them down. Um, and, you know, don't make assumptions. Those are cis sexism assumptions. And let me just assume that this person is cisgender. And so I know what they need in terms of their birth control. Okay. Or medical care. You know, what if a trans male needs a pap smear, right? Um, what if, uh, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of variations. So don't assume more open-ended questions. What kind of sex are you having, okay? Um, you're gonna have trans women I know who've gotten prostate cancer. 
Okay, so how do you how do you make it more welcoming and accepting for them to access their care? Um, and then you know one thing I want to bring up for Kat, you know, said how draining it is to have to go to providers and constantly explain for them what you need. Okay, uh, we experience sometimes this as women. Uh, I have a, a colleague of mine who was recently talking to me about kind of the misogyny as a cisgendered female, she runs into um, all kinds, you know, working with male providers who have made all kinds of assumptions that are sexist about her condition and she couldn't access their care because they kind of labeled her as X, Y, and Z um, or kind of made some sexist assumptions. So I know it's even worse, okay? Um, and she was a cisgender female. So there's misogyny everywhere and that shows up in medical centers. So one other thing, please, as a medical and mental health provider, don't minimize what somebody may have talked about they read on the internet. Yeah, the internet has misinformation, but sometimes that's the only information they have access to, right? In order to survive and advocate for themselves. So don't minimize the fact that they may not have trust in you and they're relying on the internet instead, okay? For many, that's the, they don't have anywhere else to go, right? If they live in a non-accepting family and they don't have access to affirming care, that's it, okay? Use preferred terms for body parts. Um, standard of care is to allow them to decide what to do as far as transitioning. And you can ask questions. What would you like to see for yourself, for your body now? Three years, five years from now, okay? So the last thing I'll try and wrap up with is there's key differences in working with cis um, folks who are LGB and then transgender and gender non-conforming individuals. So there's a big difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. Some people still think that they're kind of, they're not sure what the difference is. Sexual orientation is who you go to bed with. Gender identity is who you go to bed as, right? I go to bed as, maybe I define myself as uh, female uh, and I use she, her pronouns, um, but I'm attracted to women or, uh, you know, somebody can be trans, transgender and be heterosexual, okay? Um, let's see, for trans folks, uh, puberty is definitely a bigger mental health issue. Uh, and impactful. Um, and they, there's also a need for much more medical advocacy and support because it's less mental health, it's about access to care. It's less about, um, you know, I think uh, cisgender clinicians can do this poor thing, you're transgender, you know, kind of uh, approach and assume that there's all this. Some of it is, I just want access to care that'll help me be who I am. Right? Um, lastly, remember not all trans people have gender confirmation surgery. Um, not all trans people transition. Transition looks different for each person, okay? Um, you know, for trans people, they have often have the net of negative experience of needing to have others determine whether you are legit or not. Um, I remember being at a training in 2016, providing a training and actually had a psychiatrist ask, you know, what if you're not sure if they're really transgender? Uh, what if they're like faking it or are they like kind of this constant questioning, having somebody always wonder whether you're legitimate or you're delusional? Um, the other thing is, is sadly right now, there's still uh, this gatekeeper 
perspective where if somebody wants surgery, gender confirmation surgery, um, sometimes even hormones, uh, usually it's required to have uh, a letter of support from a therapist to say, oh, I think they're okay with medically transitioning. You know, we don't have to write letters of support for other people who I want to access medical care. If somebody wants care for, you know, breast implant or augmentation or, uh, uh, you know, Viagra, we don't need to write a letter to decide whether they're delusional or not. No, it's just, this is medical care I want. The, the difference also between my examples are, some of those are very much elective procedures. Um, surgery can be life-giving uh, for some trans people, right? This medically necessary in order for them to feel like they can go on living, they need this. Otherwise they don't want to live. Uh, so this is not just a light elective, oh, I want some bigger breasts, right? Um, Kat already talked about the differences in crisis response, active rescue, okay? So lastly, um, you know, the impact that the family can have on transgender teens especially. Uh, there was one study that we'll wrap up with. Transgender teens without parental support, um, in one study, 57% attempted suicide. Now, let me show you what the impact was on transgender teens with support. Transgender teens with parental support, that, that uh, number went down to 4%, okay? That's a pretty significant impact, okay? So I ask you, where should we spend our time? Yes, we can, we can work with uh, the individual LGBT, you know, lesbian, gay, transgender person, but we, we definitely should, but we also should spend an equal amount of time, in my opinion, and work with the families because families are there every day, 24 seven, okay? That will help significantly decrease the risk. Now, uh, the reality is that some trans kids, even with super, super, super accepting families, um, they still have their dark times. Right. That doesn't mean that, oh, my gosh, we're we're doing something wrong um, or that, uh, you know, anti transphobic people will use that as an, as an excuse. See, they shouldn't be trans, even though they have a accepting family, they are still not happy. Right. Um, no, it's the other thing is you're one, you're wrestling with your body and your gender identity. Secondly, encountering transphobia on a daily basis is freaking draining uh, and, and traumatizing. So, so the more we can provide support, the better, okay? And here's that same study. It's an Ontario study. Uh, again, depressive symptoms for parents who are not at all supportive, much higher considered suicide, much higher suicide attempt in the past year, 57%. For parents of supportive kids, okay, they're much greater feelings of being satisfied with life, um, higher self-esteem, intent to parent, um, adequate food and adequate housing. Look, adequate housing, 100%. Remember, Kat talked about how, uh, you know, being thrown out of the house, how traumatizing that is and not having a place to stay and how unsafe that can be. So how to be an ally, be willing to write surgery letters in one session. There's actually a resource um, uh, somebody has compiled of therapists who are willing to write surgery letters in one session 
by each state. That's how important this is. So please be willing to do something like that. And if you can do it for free, even better, okay? Let's us help vet other therapists who claim to be transgender. Um, address sexism and transphobia in your daily life and work. The other thing I think is we need to get pamphlets on uh, what being intersex, what intersex bodies, the, the fact that they exist. Okay, I think we need to have those in our clinics, in, in our health clinics, as well as mental health clinics. Okay, because this is part of the natural variation in life. And there's so much secrecy and shame around a part that's a natural uh, variant. Um, I know I encourage staff uh, and clinicians to join Facebook groups that are related for um, medical professionals or therapists uh, that are transgender care, like parents um, or friends and families. You learn a lot. So please. Okay, um, I think that's about it. I used to have a, there was a final slide somewhere. Hang on a second, let me find it. Uh, where'd it go? There it is. Um, so, you know, there's a quote that says, um, the future is already here. It's just not distributed evenly. Um, and so, which is true, right? Um, we have different access to different things. So let's try and even it out. Let's help our trans uh, friends, family members, and be uh, an ally as cisgender folks. So um, somebody mentioned the, uh, the military has opened up transgender enlistment and supports medical costs. Um, I know uh, some of the research and part of the training uh, at Trans Lifeline, they were talking about um, a higher prevalence of uh, transgender folks in the military. So I don't know, Kat, if you want to speak to that a little bit. Things are um, now steadily improving with regards to uh, military access to care now under this administration, but under the previous administration, it had gotten really, really bad. Um, there are two organizations that I would recommend y'all to check out for any time this comes up. One is TAVA, Trans American Veterans Association. The other is SPARTA, Service Persons for Respect and Tolerance for All. Um, both of those groups are a fantastic point of information and um, contact for anyone who's dealing with these sorts of issues or is a veteran or is serving in the military. Thank you, Kat. Yeah, I, I was surprised to see how many more, uh, the percent, higher percentage of uh, trans veterans than I ever imagined, and sometimes much higher percentage um, compared to their cisgender peers. So, um, you know, we're everywhere. <laughs> and uh, we are grateful for the opportunity to come present and hope it's been helpful. And um, please reach out to us. And we look forward to hopefully, I want you to sh spread the word, please. Thank you all. Thank you so very, very much. It's been an honor to be here today with you all. And I look forward to working with you in the future on um, doing, some, doing some activism and making changes. Thank you all so very much. And, and let's uh, thank you so much, Kat. I'm so glad you're here. And it was an honor to do this with you.